0: If you've got your Bibles, take and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, chapter 6. We started a new series of messages last week on worship. What worship is, what worship looks like, what worship should be about. We're going to continue that today. Now, last week we talked a little bit about the fact that worship isn't just what happens here on Sunday morning. And we are going to continue that kind of theme, but over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna this series is going to last until um for this week and next week, and we're gonna start something new in November when we uh, change our schedule and we have combined worship at 1030. But over the next couple of weeks we are going to transition a little bit to kind of talk about what happens inside this place on Sunday mornings, what worship looks like here, what it should look like here, how it should be informed by what we believe and what we know. And uh, I, what I want to do today is something a little different, something that I don't know that I've ever done before. That um, first time for me in preaching, I've been preaching now, pastoring a church for um, almost 19 years. Uh, I've been in ministry longer than that. And this, today's going to be a first time for me, I think. Uh, I can't remember everything I've ever done, but I don't think I've ever done anything like this. What I want to do is I want to take Isaiah 6. I want to go on a journey with you. Actually, it's my journey. And I want to take you through... How this passage of scripture, specifically Isaiah chapter 6, has been monumental in my life. How God has used it again and again and again. This particular passage of scripture God has used multiple times in my lives at critical junctures of my life to remind me of some things, to teach me of some things, and to kind of move my life in a different direction. And so as we think about all of that, I want us to read this passage of Scripture. We're going to talk about it a little bit. And then I want to give you three times in my life that God used it in a major way to change how I understood worship in particular. Isaiah chapter 6 starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. And now, we talk about this. I've preached on this passage of Scripture as much as any passage of Scripture because it's been so influential in my life. But anytime I preach on it, I I need to remind us here that King Uzziah had been king for decades. That he had been the king over this nation, over God's people, for decades. And Isaiah is, with the rest of the nation, a little bit perplexed about what the future holds. Now, in our country, we're used to the fact that leadership changes. A president will change at the most every eight years. But sometimes that changes every four years. And we're used to peaceful transitions, right? That, that's what happens with presidents. They transition from one to another without any kind of major problems happening. But in their day and time, sometimes kings only lasted for a couple of years, sometimes they lasted five years, and oftentimes kingships, particularly in the northern kingdom of Israel, would happen where they would be transitioned through coups, or through wars, or through fighting. And so the nation of God's people has Uzziah as their king, he's been a good king for the most part, and he's been king for decades, when suddenly he dies, and the nation is perplexed. Now here's what I don't know from this passage, but I think it's either one of two scenarios and both are important for us to understand. I don't know exactly why Isaiah is going to the temple on this day. I don't know if, first of all, it was that he didn't understand what the future holds, that he's nervous about something, that this situation in his life has brought him to the place where he feels like he needs to go to church, he needs to go to the temple to find some answers to the difficult moments of his life, to the moments when he was at this intersection where he was worried, where he didn't quite understand what was happening. Maybe it was that moment. Or perhaps he's going to the temple because that's what he did. This was his normal routine this was his normal um, ritual and I don't mean ritual there is a bad thing sometimes we make that a bad thing but it was his ritual that he went to the temple he went there to worship now the truth is my guess is that you're here for one of those two reasons today yourself so either this is just what you do on Sundays or at least the Sundays you can you come to church That's what your family's done, that's what what you do, maybe it's a new tradition you started with your family, or maybe it's one that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation, it's just part of what you do. Or, you're here today because something's going on in your life and you need answers for it. Maybe it's not something immediate, or maybe it is, but there's something happening and you're like, I need to find out, like I need to go back to church, I need to check some things out at church, I need to find some answers. We're not really sure what's happening with Isaiah here, but either way, I think what happens is instructive for us. And so Isaiah walks into the temple, and it says that when he got there, it wasn't a normal day. It wasn't a day like any other. It wasn't a ho-hum, ritualistic morning. It was a unique experience in his life. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Just a side note, by the way, there are a few moments in Scripture when the veil is pulled back, when we're given a glimpse of what worship in heaven, what worship in the eternal looks like. And what's interesting to me is the words on the lips of the angels are almost always including, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is as if, and the picture that we have here of what's happening with these angels is that they are shouting out to one another, calling out to one another, yelling to one another across the room around the presence of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory fills the earth holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory fills the earth. In fact, what we see in scripture is that when we have the veil torn back, now we're not given a glimpse, I mean we're given momentary glimpses, we're not given a full picture, we're not intended to have an understanding that this is what worship is always like in heaven, but what we do see when the veil is pulled back is the Angels around the throne, repetitively repeating again and again and again that the Lord God Almighty is holy, holy, holy. It says that as he saw this, as Isaiah walks into the temple, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim angels flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So here's what I want to do. I want to just give you some basic understandings of some things in this passage. And then I want to give you three examples in my life when God used this passage in a mighty way. Now, as you think about this, I want you to understand that what is happening here is that in this short eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6, we have three of the major themes of all of Scripture found here. Throughout Scripture, there are certain themes that run throughout the entire book from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we have three of those show up in pretty apparent ways. And the first thing that we see in this passage that's important for us to understand, that is a thread throughout Scripture, is that our God is glorious. Now, I know y'all aren't very good at amens. Okay, but that's a good place right there. Our God is glorious. Now, there's some things in here that give us an understanding of what that means or why that's there. It says that when he enters the temple, the first thing it tells us is where is God in the temple? Where is God in that place? He is seated, which means he is settled, which means he is comfortable in this position. And he is seated where? On a high and lofty throne. We know that when you walk into a room, generally speaking, if someone is sitting, standing higher than you, it shows some sort of authority. It shows some sort of leadership. It shows some sort of ability to be able to make decisions or to rule. I don't know if you know this or not, but there was a football game late last night. I'm not going to talk a lot about the game. At least we tried. But... The coach of Alabama is a guy named Nick Saban. Nick Saban is not the largest human being in the world. He's actually not very tall. He, by the way, works with athletes that are 6'5 to 6'8 a lot of times, big guys. And when you're a coach, one of the things that he has to communicate is that he is the boss. Now, I have heard rumors. I have not been in Nick Saban's office. I know shocking. haven't been in there. But I've heard rumors that in his office when you walk in, he sits at his desk in an elevated position. Like his desk is higher. Now, what would be the purpose of Nick Saban having a desk that was higher than whoever's coming into the room? Because he's in charge. Now listen, God doesn't have to sit on a man-made, made-up platform to show that he's in charge, right? He is absolutely always in charge. I mean, just the description here is that it's a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe, the the outlier of his robe, fills the temple. You see, they had built the temple as a place that would house the presence of God. But when Isaiah walks in, the understanding is that the presence of God for them, yes, it was housed in the temple. But for them, it was housed in a very specific part of the temple where only one person was allowed one time a year in order to make a sacrifice unto him. And that was in the Holy of Holies, that that was kind of the place where God's presence dwelt in that moment. But when Isaiah walks in, he gets the understanding that the God that we serve is not Held in a specific place at a specific time to a small detail. The hem, the edge of his garment fills the entire temple. It is as if the temple cannot contain the presence of God. Because the temple cannot contain the presence of God. Our God is greater than we could ever imagine. He is not just a little bit better than us. He is not by degree better than us. It's not like if we're at a two, God's at 100. If we're at two, God is at infinity. He is greater than us. He is glorious. We talked about on Wednesday night, on our Bible study on Wednesday night, the book of Job, where Job gets upset because God has let all this stuff happen to him. And he gets towards the end and Job finally just starts asking God questions. And God finally comes to him and says, Job, where were you when I spoke and the worlds came into existence? Then when God spoke and the worlds came into existence, our world and all that we know of the known universe, we don't even know all that we know about what is out there because we don't have the time to get the information to count what God has built when we are just trying to figure it out for thousands of years. God spoke and it happened. He is a glorious God. And when Isaiah walks in, in the midst of a troubling situation in his nation, the first thing that God wants him to understand is that he is greater than any problem that we will ever need. Any problem that will ever come into our lives, any moment that we will ever encounter, that our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is better. God is glorious. Now that causes a problem. Because we are not. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I started to have you turn to your neighbor and say, you are not that good. But that may not be healthy for some of you. Some of you would enjoy it way too much. But we're not. As you have a glorious, unbelievable, all inspiring God, and you got us. No, we're not as bad as we could possibly be. We don't fail all the time, but we are a species that is conflicted because we often choose to do what God would call us not to do. And as a result, we have this issue between us and God. And that's there, right? Isaiah says, (laughs) and I'm in trouble. He walks in, and the woe is me is not like woe is me. That is like I. Am in trouble, and here's the second theme that's throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation: God's grace is amazing. He doesn't ask God for anything, right? He just comes in and says, "God, listen, I'm here. I I, I walked in. Whether it's like I looked in, coming for answers." or I just kind of walk in because it's my normal thing. When I look up and I see you, when I understand who you are, when I get a glimpse, a small glimpse, now understand this, this is not the fullness of God's glory on display for Isaiah. Because man cannot stand in our current sinful state in the presence of God and survive. This is a portion of... That God reveals to Isaiah in that moment that he is able to handle where he is. And it is enough to knock him to the ground and for him to say, I am messed up. He says that I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he doesn't ask for it. He's not asking God, hey, can I just hang out here for a little bit? But before he can even do anything about it, God sends an angel, takes a live coal. You know what that means. It's hot. And he touches his lips. And then the angel says this. Now that he has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. One of the themes throughout Scripture is that without the grace of God, we would never be able to stand in or enter into or worship the God of the universe because we are not people who are good enough to do that. He gives Isaiah something he doesn't deserve, which is the honor to be able to stand in his presence and to worship him with his lips. And here's the third theme of Scripture that's throughout this passage, the theme that's throughout the Scripture that's also here, and that is that our call, our response, is worship. And that the purpose of all creation is worship. Now, Isaiah worships him in a very different way than we might expect. We might expect a song of praise to rise up after his lips have been touched, after the iniquity has been removed, after his sin has been atoned for. But instead, in that moment, instead of... And maybe that is there. Maybe Isaiah didn't put it in there. Maybe he didn't give us a full glimpse of what happens in this moment. My guess is, because if you just read through this passage like we did, it takes like a minute, a minute and a half. My guess is this interaction took a lot longer than a minute and a minute and a half. And so maybe there was moments of praise. Maybe there was shouting. Maybe there was singing. I don't know. But I do know that in the midst of whatever's going on, the voice of the Lord asked, Who should I send and who will go for us? And I said, Isaiah said here am i send me And the first kind of moment in my life when god used isaiah chapter 6 to impact my life happened because of that particular verse you see true worship as described here from isaiah in chapter 6 true worship in our lives will be life-changing It will change our direction. It will change how we think. It will change what we do. It will change us. Summer of 1990 was a monumental time in my life. I was 14 years old. I was getting ready to start high school. During that summer, we went to camp like youth groups do. And we were going to camp to Ridgecrest, North Carolina. It's the first time I'd ever been to Ridgecrest. We're going to a camp called Centrifuge. Centrifuge um, had been the camp I'd gone to the year before. God had really kind of gotten a hold of my life in between my 7th and 8th grade years at Centrifuge camp. And so I was really pumped. In fact, it was the first time because as a 7th grader, we went to Centrifuge just as 7th graders at my church. This was the first time I was going with the whole youth group. It was a big deal. I was pumped. We drove to Ridgecrest, North Carolina, and I was... uh, uh, we drove up, I remember we drove up on campus. How many of you, anybody been to Ridgecrest, North Carolina? Okay, a few of us, all right. So we drove up, mountains are great, conference center. We drive in, and I, I just remember thinking all that. We got there, we got our rooms. I was hanging out, my, my three best friends were in a room with me. As you know, two bunk beds on top of each other. It was going to be awesome. Um, got ready, uh, went ate supper, and then went to our first session. I remember walking into the first session, the first night, kind of the welcome night, and there was a song playing as I walked in. Now, some of you won't even know what this song is. Hopefully, most of you will know at least the person that was singing the song. But the guy singing was a guy named Stephen Curtis Chapman. That was the song that was... He wasn't, like, on stage singing. It was a song, all right? Anybody know Stephen Curtis Chapman? That's back in the SC Square days, all right? That's what he... All right? And so, um, so I walked in, and, and the song playing was a song... It's one of his early songs called It's My Turn Now. And I just remember, for whatever reason, walking in, like, man, I'm pumped, I'm excited, my buds are with me, I'm, you know, ready for this week, God's going to do something awesome this week, I just feel it. And I remember walking in, and God, I kind of had this sense that God was going to deal with me in some way, I don't know how to describe that, just I kind of knew that camp was a big deal. And walking in, I remember that song playing, and I just remember the Spirit of the Lord just speaking to me, in a, just in a little, like a pinprick, saying, it's your turn, Lyle. This week's going to change you. And I was like, okay, cool, God, That's awesome. Let's go hang out. All right. So we go with my buds. We're singing. First or second night of worship. I'm not real sure which one. It was either uh, Monday night or Tuesday night. The pastor for the week was a guy who um, would end up coming and helping our church a little bit. Um, he was a, a guy that was a, a youth pastor looking for thing. We were looking for a youth pastor at the time. I remember this trip particularly also because my pastor went. And my pastor was a guy that was, he was older. I know some of you think I'm older, but I'm not. Second service thinks I'm still like 12. But, you know, um, I mean, first service thinks I'm like 12. They think I'm young. But I was, I was, was. Uh, our pastor was a guy that was in his 60s when I was in the youth group. Um, and I don't know that I had ever seen him in anything but a suit. Like, I was convinced that if I drove by Brother Boston's house, he'd be in the garden in a suit, right? That was just my pastor. That's what it was. And he showed up at worship on the first night in blue jeans. And I was like... What? Who is this guy? This is awesome. Right. And I remember like it was a big event for me, like pastors are like normal people most of the time. All right. Like, That was awesome for me. I'd never seen him in shorts. Now, I saw him in shorts that week. I didn't see his legs because he wore blue socks up to his uh, up to the knee, but he had shorts. And so that was cool. And so got to know Brother Boston a little bit that week. But the preacher, the guy that was camp pastor there was a young guy, twenty nine, thirty, and he preached that first night or second night on Isaiah chapter six. And he did the whole thing and I remember being cool. about. He told the whole thing about the angels and the flying and what the wings meant and broke down the words and told funny stories and all that. But then he got to the end and he said, and at the end, Isaiah had to respond to a question. The question he responded to is, who will I send and who will go for us? And he said, that's the same question God is asking tonight. And for some of you in this room, it's your turn now. And I just remember the Lord, like, piercing my heart, like, it's time. Later that week, I would find myself in the prayer garden at Ridgecrest, North Carolina, sitting at a bench with a cross in front of me and telling the Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And the Lord saying, you're going to be a preacher. And he didn't tell me the full details. He didn't say anything about Goodlessville, Tennessee in that whole time. But he said, the rest of your life, you're going to serve me in ministry. And I remember that question reverberating in my mind. Who will go for me and who will send? Who will go? Who will I send? And just my response, I'm here, Lord. Send me. And I'd like to tell you that every time since then, when the Lord's asked that question, I have been willing to volunteer. And there have been times when I have. But there have also been times when that question's been asked and I've been looking around with him like, I don't know, Lord, who are you going to send? Who will go? I'm sure there's some good volunteers out here. Instead of asking that question of myself. Here's the thing about Isaiah. When he responds that way, God says to him, all right, that's awesome, Isaiah. It's not going to be easy. I mean, he tells him, you're going to go talk, and those people are not going to listen. They're not going to understand. They're going to think they see, but they're not going to perceive. And Isaiah says, how long do I have to do this? And he says, until I've destroyed everything, until my judgment has come, you keep preaching. And so the first lesson that I learned from this passage of Scripture is simply this. That true worship is life-changing. Here's the second thing I've learned from this passage of Scripture at a different place in a different time. True worship brings freedom. So I grew up, I mentioned it, with Brother Boston, my pastor, who was uh, stately. He was a guy that was always serious um, for the most part. He'd tell a joke every now and then, but he was just, he was, I mean, he was a great guy. I loved Brother Boston. I was uh, privileged to be able to be a part of, um, when, when he passed away, being able to be there for the family. and It was an awesome thing. But I also grew up in a traditional church, traditional Southern Baptist church, and I, I would tell you what that was but many of you did the same thing now some of you did some of you grew up in places they didn't have southern baptist churches but i grew up in a southern baptist church which was traditional which meant on sunday morning we sang hymns usually first second fourth stanza of each hymn if we got really crazy we'd sing them all one day like you could hear people if you're like we're going to sing all four stanzas Whew! Like, I don't know that we can handle that today, right? Like, I know. But I also grew up in a time when youth groups were starting to do youth worship. Used to youth groups were not youth worship stuff. They would do like youth game night or they would do a Bible study or they would do, they would do act teens or something that was, that was a little more focused on Bible study, not worship. But I was part of that first kind of generation, at least in our church, that was doing youth worship on Wednesday night. It was really elaborate. It was usually our youth minister taking a boombox and pushing play on the latest uh, CD or tape that was there for us to listen to and sing with. And every once in a while at my home church, every once in a while, we would get really crazy. And before we left, we would sing a chorus. I know. It's hard to believe. And on certain weeks, we would sing a chorus and the music minister would say, and I want you all to join hands across the aisle. I mean, we're getting way out there now. I mean, people were questioning our salvation when we did this kind of stuff. Those were always the weeks you prayed for when you were sitting next to a girl that you might like at the moment. Like, let this be a chorus holding hands week, Lord. Right? It would be great. And sometimes when we were holding hands across the aisle, singing a chorus at the end of a service, when everybody left that didn't like that, we would he would say, now everyone raise your hands to the sky. We'd gone full Pentecostal in the Baptist church not really but and every once in a while somebody would take their hands and they would let go and they would kind of come here and the people on each side would grab your hands real quick to make sure you got to get back anybody feel me anybody know what I'm talking about all right I see you all right and so that was my that was my growing up that was it like I worshiped in a box like literally felt like I was here and hands had to stay here right when I was in college, I moved, to, obviously, to college. I went to Union University. I started uh, going to a church called Inglewood Baptist Church. My future father-in-law, I didn't really know Susan that, then, um, didn't know the pastor then, my now father-in-law, uh, Phil Jett, but he was the pastor of the church, and I went, and they sang a course, every week. It was radical. They also did this thing where they put the words on screens using a slide projector. Not computers. They would go to the... Do you all remember the photo stores that used to be around? And they'd get slides developed every week. So if you wanted the Spirit to move... Sorry, the slides are in place, right? And they were like old slideshow would go up on the screen. And so I was given charge while I was there working through some stuff. Um, Somehow, and through it all, God led me to be the college minister at Englewood. Still before Susan and I were dating, went and met with her dad... Interviewed with him, he said, "I want you to take it over." I said, "Do you have any instructions?" He said, "Do whatever you want to do." That's a dangerous thing to tell a twenty year old, but I did. I went. That, that January, there was going to be a conference in Austin, Texas. And my favorite band was this, <laughs> for some of you in the room, y'all were going to this is not going to make any sense to you at all. My favorite band at that time was a group from Texas. That did not have an album out, but I had a bootleg copy of a live show on tape. Anybody know what I, anybody feel me? Okay, three of us, good, all right. And so they were gonna be performing, their name were Caveman's Call, they were gonna be performing there, and they said, hey, I, I was just talking to some guys, hey, let's take a trip. And they were like, can you do that? I'm like, I don't know, I'm the college minister, let's take a trip. Well, who are we gonna go with? Well, uh, like, we gotta have an adult. Well, I'm 20, like, no, like a real adult. Like, <laughs> And so I went to my campus minister at Union and said, man, I want to go. And he goes, oh, man, I like one of the speakers. Okay, we'll get a group together. Your church, Inglewood, and our, uh, and Union, we'll go down there. And so we loaded up on uh, New Year's Eve 1996 and drove to Austin, Texas from Jackson, Tennessee. Now, just so you know, the campus minister at Union at that time was 26. Real adult, all right? We got there. First day of the conference was January 1st, 1997. I actually have a picture of it that was posted on Facebook this week. And this is it. There are 2,000 of us. The people that had traveled farthest away to come to this conference were from a school in Jackson, Tennessee named Union University. They announced that on stage. The rest of them were all Texas schools. Baylor, Texas Um, A&M. You can't see... Us or our group, but our group is right here in the front. This isn't the first night, because I think this is a special moment they had when they had a, a special guy come in and lead some worship stuff. I think isn't it, I think that's Dennis Jernigan, who is uh, famous for writing like lots of worship songs from that time frame. But the first night we were there, they started playing songs that I would never heard before. Never been exposed to before. From a group down in Australia, a church named Hillsong. They started playing those songs from a group out of England named Delirious. And they started to play them and we were like, man, this is like this is refreshing and new and different. And I remember knowing, hey, this is how conferences go. I'm going to be here. I'm going to go. They're going to sing for like 20 minutes. And I'm going to hear somebody speak. And then we're going to be done for the night. That's awesome. And, and so I, I, was, I was the preacher kid. I was the kid that was going to be a pastor. I had my notebook. I had everything ready. I was coming for the conference. There was a late night concert that night from Cademan's Call. So I was like, man, that's, that's what I'm really looking forward to. And I remember sitting there. And about 45 minutes in, I was like, man, this is a long worship set. This is long. And about 50 minutes in, some guy came out and he pulled all he had was a Bible. I didn't I never heard him speak before. His name was Louis. Louis Giglio took the Bible and he read Isaiah chapter six one through eight. and he said, "We're here tonight to worship, and that's all we're going to do." And he sat down, and we started in again. They had banners in that building that had the names of God on them. And I remember, for whatever reason, in that moment, the Lord spoke to me clearly, referencing this moment from Isaiah chapter 6, this passage that has come to me again and again, and he said, be free. Now, listen. I'm a West Tennessee Caucasian male. My freedom is different than other people sometimes. Okay, just be honest here. I walked over, I remember this. I remember, like, it was almost like I didn't know I was walking, but I walked over to one of the banners. And I remember standing there with 30 people, I have no clue who they are. And as the band began to sing this new song, Shout to the Lord. I remember looking to heaven and my arms just went. I don't know if that's the first time I ever lifted my arms in worship, but it's the one I remember. I remember later, Delirious sang a song called, Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble? And I remember there was a moment in that when they encouraged us to, to be free with our worship. And it literally, now for some people, you will not understand this because that's not the tradition, that's not where you grew up, that's not what was happening in your life. But for me, in that moment, it literally felt like shackles were falling from my arms. Because I had worshipped in a box. And I felt the Lord say, be free. True worship comes into your life and you are so overwhelmed by the glory and the goodness of God, that you really don't care how that plays out in your life. What that looks like, what that feels like, you are surrendered to the Lord. And that's a scary thing, but true worship cannot be contained. You say, well, where do you see that in Isaiah chapter 6? Well, here's what I can tell you about Isaiah chapter 6. I know that in the moment that the coal touched his lips and God said to him, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for, that in that moment he felt a freedom that he had never felt before. Third time and third thing and then we're done. The third way that God used this passage in my life is that he showed me through it that the worship of God is my purpose In life. True worship is our purpose. Not a purpose. Not one of the purposes. It is the purpose of my life. After we graduated from Union. This all happened in a 10 year span. And so the first moment was in the summer of 1990. Passion 97. By the way that little conference that has 2,000 people. Will fill Mercedes Benz Stadium. January 1st, 2nd this year third time came in 1999. I graduated from Union. Susan and I got married. We moved to Fort Worth, Texas. In Fort Worth, Texas, I was in school at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I was a student in the Masters of Divinity with Biblical Languages, which is, I think, one of the most... It requires more hours than almost any other master's degree in the world. And a part of that is is because they make you take all this stuff that's not related to your masters directly. For instance, I had to take a class in church education, I had to take a class in church youth ministry, I had to take a class in marital counseling, and I had to take a class somehow in the music school. Well, I am not taking music theory because I can't sing or I'm not musically inclined. And there was a class there that somebody told me, hey, this would be really good. It was taught by a guy named Dr. Bruce Leafblad, and it was called The Theology of Worship. And that class, I remember a lot of my Master of Divinity classes somewhat. I remember that class well. Dr. Leafblad, we went into his class. He had a notebook. He gave us all a notebook, and he said, this will be your God for the class. And day one, we started on Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And for two weeks, we talked about this passage of Scripture. And then, one of our assignments in the class was, we had to take the Bible, and he gave us certain passages to read from, and most of them had nothing to do with people worshiping. But he said, I want you to look at that passage write down a characteristic of God that you see from that passage, and I want you to worship God for that characteristic that day. And it changed my life. Because I began to see, I mean, we didn't read just the Psalms. We read Leviticus. We read Genesis. We read Titus. We read First Thessalonians. We read throughout the entire Bible. And every part of the Bible told me that my purpose is to worship God. Part of what got me thinking about this whole journey is I was listening to a sermon from uh, Louis a few weeks ago. Louis Giglio is now one of the most well-known speakers in the country. And Louis Giglio was talking about, I was listening to it because he was talking about why they started Passion. And God just brought something full circle to me because he talked about, you know, I've been thinking about this, all of these things kind of running in my mind. I've been thinking about this series on worship. And Louie was talking about, he said, when I was in school, and he said, when I was in graduate school in Texas, he said, I took a class by a guy named Dr. Bruce Leafblad called The Theology of Worship. And he said it was there that passion was born. This is the truth that we have to come to understand. Is the reason you exist on this earth is to glorify God. I mean, we've baked that into our purpose statement. We exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, The first part of that, we could stop it right there. And that would be good enough for a purpose statement. Some of say, that would be great because it would be easier to Remember? We exist to glorify God. Now the way as a church we do that is by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Christ. Those that are here, those that are a part of our church, and those outside of our church. That's our goal. But the truth is, that's not just the purpose statement for this church. That's the purpose statement for your life. I exist to glorify God. Now, yours may have a different tagline on the end how you're going to do that, but your reason for existence is the glorification of the God who deserves every bit of our praise. In the way that we live and the way that we share who He is and the way we interact with people and the way that we serve people and the way we reach people, the way we talk to people, the way we share things on social media, the way that we encourage one another, the way that we bond together with one another, all of that is a part of our existence to glorify God. And when you and I walk into this room on a Sunday morning Our reason for being here is to glorify God. And I want to be part of a church. I want to be part of a community. I want to be part of a movement. That that is what we are all about. That that is the center of the reason that we gather. Not why I want to be here or what I want to hear or what I want to do or where I want to go. But that we are here to glorify God. And that in the midst of that, He's going to give us things to do. And He's going to give us songs to sing. And He's going to give us messages to hear. But I want to first and foremost glorify God... Because that is my calling in my life. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And the angels are gathered around him. And they are singing holy, holy, holy. Nobody is around going, hmm, that's not the song I would have picked. It's not my personal preference. Because in that moment, all that people care about is that there is a holy God. And he deserves my praise. We exist to glorify God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth and the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. And in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, (laughs) your iniquity, your sin is removed. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. May we be a people that recognize the glorious nature of the God we serve, that are enthralled by the grace that He gives us that we do not deserve, and that we will worship Him in spirit and in truth with all that we have in freedom, changing our lives daily because of the glory of the God we serve.